This is the Forgecast, your eye into the who's who and what's what in cybersecurity and the cloud. Each episode, we bring you fresh perspectives, personal stories, insights, and advice from leaders, innovators, and change makers forging a stronger future. Hello and welcome. My name is Alberto Yepes, and I'm going to be your host this afternoon, and I'm honored to have both Cindy and Ron Gula as our main feature for the Porsche cast. So where do I begin? This is a power couple in cybersecurity. They've done it all. They have started companies and successfully scaled them and found exits. They are currently investing in startups and, and funds. They are also helping our community by being philanthropists and helping a lot of nonprofits to increase the awareness, diversity, and intentional purpose of our cyber industry, and and now trying to drive a lot of policy. And therefore, it is a pleasure to have you both, and thank you for taking the time to share this with our community. Glad to be here. How's it going? It's going great, and, uh, <laughs> and it's only going to get better just because, Cindy, and you are going to be adding some insights that a lot of people may not know about these. So why don't we get started, and, you know, a lot of people wonder, you know, you're a couple, and you work together pretty much all your lives, and so how did it begin? How do you get to know each other and decided to be partners in life? And uh, maybe we'll get Cindy's perspective. Well, believe it or not, it was a blind date, so... <laughs> Ron and I <laughs> met on a blind date in Syracuse, New York. My background, I'm a glass engineer by schooling, and I worked at Syracuse, China. And my now sister-in-law and I were friends, and she set us up on a blind date because we were both engineers and we both like Star Trek. So <laughs> thank goodness for Trek. Absolutely. <laughs> Live long and prosper. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> And Ron, what was your view? Well, you know, my view is I want to do Impressor. So I had to tell her where I worked, which was the National Security Agency. And she said, well, I actually said, where do you work? And he said, oh, I could tell you, but I'd have to kill That's you. the real story. And so from that standpoint, then it got to the NSA and then it got to no such agency. And then when he finally said the National Security Agency, I said, and what is that? I had no idea. There was not... In Syracuse, there wasn't a lot of understanding outside of the commercial uh, arena. So it took a little while. And then I got homework. So he said, well, if you want to know what I do, read the cuckoo's egg. And so couldn't tell me what he was doing. Got homework. It's a really good thing. He's funny. <laughs> yeah. And it, it was funny because, you know, that book, the, the whole Cliff Stoll cuckoo's egg, you know, I read that before I got to the National Security Agency, but the people from the National Security Agency in that book, I sought out and I asked to go work there as my last tour in the Air Force. So I guess we could thank Star Trek and Cliff Stoll for our marriage. Nice. And, and I guess by being there, a lot of the juices and creative uses and innovation got started and that's how what it led to you guys being entrepreneurs because you had such a wonderful infrastructure and some people never leave the NSA because it's such an environment where you do a lot of good for our nation. And But uh, how did the, the whole entrepreneurship start it? You know, it's funny. The, the NSA and a lot of the intelligence community in the DOD, they're, they're very entrepreneurial, right? They have these amazing programs that they birth and put into process and, you know, support our war fires and defend the country. But 
you know, it's not like they teach you how to do venture capital or how to market your product and that sort of thing. But one thing the NSA taught me was I understood technology and bureaucracy and how hackers worked and vulnerabilities work. So I ended up in the private sector after serving in the Air Force. I was at this company called US Internetworking and I was using a product called ISS Real Secure. ISS in many ways was kind of like the first tenable and the first source fire and, and stuff like that. But I, I, I had an idea and I came home one day and I said, Cindy, I got this idea to do a network intrusion detection system. Can you help run the company? I eventually ended up working for her. Yeah, I said, well, you know what? After going through engineering school and passing all of that, I saw all the business people and they seemed to be having a really good time at school and not necessarily hard classes. So I figured it couldn't be that hard. So we got an accountant, got a lawyer, and started our first company. And that was in 1997. And we had that acquired in 18 months and without raising any venture capital and uh, without knowing anything about bankers, venture capital, product life cycles, anything like that. It was very much customer-focused, customer-led growth, and it was, uh, it was a really fun time. And we had six employees and we got bought by Enterasys Networks, which was a hardware company, and we were a software company. So we learned a lot with square peg, round hole, that they didn't understand software. And we learned a lot of hardware and how to sell it. And so it really, it really did help us understand the broader market and the difficulties that our customers had buying products. Interesting, because we always talk to entrepreneurs in saying, you always should start a company or invest with the exit in mind. And it, probably in your case, because you bootstrapped your company, you were doing this for the right reasons. I guess the inbound probably was something you were not planning. That is, it, is that correct? And it, it was really interesting. So, you know, coming out, um, not, not having a reputation, just mm -hmm. having the product to kind of stand by. You know, when you went to a conference, they they would actually put our product next to like the Cisco product and the ISS product and, and other products that were out there. And we would constantly, you know, get lines at the booth. And we we kind of got a little bit of a reputation for that. So shortly after that was the MSSPs. So for example, the guy who runs Tenable now, Amit Uran, he ran and founded Riptech and Dragon, which was our, our network IS product, was the main sensor that they were using. And that added a lot of legitimacy. So that, you know, we've been kind of aware and working with the MSSP market since the late late 90s, which is just crazy. Interesting. And then, so how long do you spend in the acquired company and what roles do you play? So I think my official title was, I was the vice president of intrusion detection engineering, which I thought was neat and nobody else knew what that was. But I ended up serving two years on a three-year earnout. And, you know, left to start Tenable, I think you. I always give myself the title of director of special projects when I want to exit a company. So I think I was director of special projects. And I do believe our uh, first son was born and actually our second son was born. And at that time, that's when I, I left that, left in terraces. Mm -hmm. But then when he left to start another company, and we started talking about that and what it was and ultimately became Tenable. Again, we started it together. And, you know, one thing I'll just add before we talk about Tenable is, you know, when you have that exit in mind, I like to tell, you know, the entrepreneurs, it's more than the money. It's a lot more than the money. We learn so much 
go into in terraces, right? We learned about facilities. We moved to an amazing office. We learned about two-tier channel distribution. We learned about international support teams, like the Ireland team. We were working with an Irish support team in the early 2000s. That just put us way ahead as far as like a learning curve of how to run companies. And uh, I think the list goes on and on. I think, you know, the number one thing, think about half of the company of Dragon, they're still involved with us today, either at Google Tech Adventures or working with a portfolio company of ours. So, you know, life, lifelong friends. And that's what I think every entrepreneur should be looking out for. It's interesting because if I do the math correctly, you started Tenable around 2000, right? Is that? 2002. Many people, even in our current market conditions, saying, oh my goodness, they never seen markets and you know cycles. And many entrepreneurs, they think, oh, it's gloom and doom. You started the company not only after the bubble bursted in 2000, after September 11, we thought we were going to come back and we went down again. But what a great environment to start a company. And as we keep on telling entrepreneurs, this is the best time to do that. But maybe share a little bit about how Tenable came about and how do you race above the noise and started getting the right traction. And, and yeah. So, so I think there's two stories. One I'll tell, and it's a pretty straightforward one, is that it wasn't the Ron and Cindy show. We had a lot of great people. And, and the main co-founder, or first one was Jack Hufford, right? So Jack was on the M&A team of Interesis. So as I spent my two years at Interesis, you know, I developed a relationship with Jack. He got married to a woman in Washington, D.C., was moving down there. I think one day either he said or I said, hey, wouldn't it be great if we started a company together? What kind of company will we start? And I said, well, the whole time we were sniffing packets with Dragon, you know, we were basically seeing ways that the hackers broke in. Wouldn't it be nice to help people kind of be a bit more proactive? But I'm going to set Cindy up here. You know, when we started that company, Jack and I spent a good bit of time going out fundraising and we were not successful. So Cindy very, very early basically ran the company with profitability in mind. Every penny had to count. Yeah, we hired based on our sales. And at the time, both of our companies benefited from universities. Our first customer, Network Security Wizards, was Harvard. And so Harvard University was extremely exploratory and they were very good at, at taking small company startups and integrating them and utilizing them. And one of the best things that came out of that was an amazing relationship. And when we started Tenable, Johns Hopkins University was actually our first customer. And so again, it really allowed us to grow and create the product with a customer side by side saying, it'd be really nice if you did this. Oh, we could put that in there. We, it'd be really nice if you could do this. So they started to become QA in, in certain ways but also a really good partner so that we're producing what the customer wanted and not just in theory what we thought that the customer wanted. And it really does so much for a startup to have that relationship. And then they become really good advocates of yours and then they tell two friends and then they tell two friends. And, and so in the beginning, it really was the reputation that we had built with Dragon, the intrusion detection system. And then on top of that, the collaboration that we have and listening to the customers and just allowing them to be part of our journey too. Key points you just said that customer-driven innovation because a lot of times entrepreneurs have a great idea and try to build something that they think the customer wants. And in my own experience as well, for me, and also the way we, we work with many of our portfolio companies is working with key customers that become design partners 
and they can tolerate the product not being complete and have bugs and eventually help you achieve the right fit. And then that's how you can, besides being an advocate, they become reference accounts. Interesting, in my first company, Brigham Young University was my first customer. And I remember, I think it was like a $65,000 check that I still to this day have it been out in a mark. And we bootstrap our company. We have a lot of parallels in our careers because I started my company with my wife as well. And then anyway, Brigham Young was our core customer. And then super sophisticated and they really brought in a lot of credibility to do that. So that was one key thing, customer-driven innovation. You know, universities is a great, partner to work together. But then as you evolve, tell tell us a little bit about the inflection points that you had and, and the eventual outcome that you guys had. So I've got a couple. I'm sure Cindy has a couple. You know, we raised a lot of money. We did a $50 million raise from Excel Partners. We did another $300 million-ish raise from Insight Capital and uh, Excel as well. But the story I tell people is that the company was so profitable, all of that money was secondary. And, you know, when I talk to founders, I say, look, if you run a really good company and you're nailing your product growth and you're nailing your customers' needs, you're probably going to be making money. And, you know, the question is, is then if you're going to go public someday, you can't go public only 100% of the company, right? So, so you got to do that. But we really enjoyed that because we were able to bring all the employees into a room, have a meeting, tell them that we raised $50 million in secondary, then explain to them what secondary stock was and then have hugs and tears and stuff like that. So that was a big in inflection point. Boris, do you have any? Yeah, at the beginning of the company, when we had the four of us sitting down, it was Renaud Derrison, Jack Hufford, Ron, and me, and we were structuring how to structure the, the company. And I said, you know, with our first company, we actually got dinged a lot being called a mom and pop shop because I owned the majority and, and Ron, I owned it and we were married and it created some barriers that I didn't think that needed to exist. And so I said, you know what, I don't have to be listed as a founder, but I will do all the, you know, business stuff and, and be right there. So, you know, we started Tunnable at that point. It was a little funny because Renault was still in Paris. So I was actually employee number three. <laughs> so uh, working through with getting him across the pond. There was another really big inflection point that is going to be dated now for Tenable is that, you know, we we owned the Nessus open source vulnerability scanners. Rob Derrison was the author of that. And, and I say owned on purpose because it became a responsibility. It became a competitive advantage. It also became a tool that, you know, we, in the early 2000s, we were signing deals and indemnifying our customers that if they got sued for using our open source software, that we were on the hook for paying that, right? So we eventually closed sourced Nessus, which again is a dated concept kind of now, but I always tell people this story because I felt every company that we've dealt with, there's some sort of religious barrier, some sort of third rail that they don't want to touch, something that they don't want to do that if they did, it could go somewhere else. Like Tenable today, very committed to auditing and not fixing things, right? They don't remediate, they don't pass, they don't do that, but they do, they really focus on discovery. And there's a lot of purity in that, but I see a lot of companies try to do too much or not take that second step that could get them to the next level. Yeah. Another key learning there is open source projects are a great way to drive community, mm -hmm. get an option, but eventually understand the potential liability you're signing up for in the concept of owning is you have to have the authors and contributors 
in your team and you have to have the difference between what is the enterprise or commercial product versus that. But eventually, in your case, it was interesting. Maybe it's a separate podcast or broadcast topic because how do you bring those liabilities, you know, and close them in that sense? And there's many, many cybersecurity companies that they were created with, within open source project and have been very successful in adoption. Well, just for 2023, just replace the word open source with artificial intelligence and we're, we're right back where we were. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Let's move on. So now you exited, you decided to define a new chapter for the two of you. And I would imagine that's how Gula Tech Adventures started, right? Maybe share a little bit of your thinking because you could have gone and run the next company because now you've done two, the third one should be easier, right? So Cindy's been on a roll naming things. So why don't, why don't you tell about that? Well, we had done some investing prior to formalizing anything. And we realized that we really do like that small company growth, helping people to avoid some of the mistakes that we made or that we could see. And it really started to resonate with us that we wanted to help the startup community in cyber. And we looked at a lot of things, some Mach 37 incubators, that type of thing. And we realized that if we had an incubator and we decided to invest in one or two of the companies in a cohort, that that would not reflect well on the ones we didn't invest in. And so we chose investing versus incubating. So now we try to be friends with all the incubators and supportives and, you know, we just need more and more. And so when we decided that, we knew we were going to be in venture capital, but we're, we're like, you know, it's going to be more than that. It, it just inherently is. So when we said Gula Tech it, and we're like coming over the last word, we're like, well, what about Gula Tech Adventures? Because we knew it was going to be an adventure. We knew there was other things other than just the startup community that we wanted to be in, the community itself. We wanted to be part of the ecosystem and then, you know, what we could do outside of that to help the community and to help the policymakers get more involved in the industry. So Gula take on numbers in terms of companies you invested in or just the ballpark you've involved? Oh, total. I think we've done about 45 investments over the past five years. That doesn't count. We did some fund to funds. Like we're happy to be LPs with Forgepoint. Um, you know, it gives us more perspective, especially coming out of Tenable, not knowing everything that we knew before we sent on the adventure here. But we also had a lot of exits, and uh, we've had a lot of exits in 21 and 20, and uh, they are listed on the webpage. And there's a personal story for every one of those exits. Was it, you know, the founders, it was time for them to sell? Was it a, a good return? Are they on their way to IPO? You know, companies like uh, like Huntress, you know, just killing it, defending almost 3 million endpoints in small business. And that's one we're doing in cooperation with Forgepool and JMI and Sapphire now. So it's an adventure. Yeah. And then you take it upon yourselves to educate the community by saying, this is what you have to have in a pitch. These are, you're providing, you know, VC 101, or how do you think about building your company, but you wanted to take it to the next scale. And I think a little bit comes with what you try to do now with the Gula Tech Foundation. You had a lot of objectives. Maybe you can. It's, it's interesting. You know, coming out of the NSA, I thought I was probably the smartest person in cyber. You know, then doing intrusion detection, like tracking hackers for, I thought I still had that title. Then running Tenable, the holy cow, right? Site license at the DOD, 20,000 organizations worldwide. Wow. But it, we just keep learning. And a couple years into Gula Tech Adventures, 
you know, we really wanted to start giving back to to the community, both in terms of some time and content. And, you know, it's we did we do have a YouTube channel. We've been putting out a lot of videos on cybersecurity, a lot of videos on wait, I call it DC one oh one. And some of it's as simple as pitch decks. Like I've got a thing, I want your pitch deck to have five slides. What problem do you solve? How do you solve it? Show me some proof that I should believe you, right? What's your ask? What are you gonna do with the money? And then the fifth thing is what's your version of success? And I'll go through somebody's pitch deck and not hear that. And I, I've heard people use this in the Pentagon. I've heard people, it's, there's people, you know, how to pitch. There's a lot of stories on that that are, are similar, but I call it the five slide pitch deck. But at the same time, when we start talking about public policy, we start talking about the philanthropy with the foundation, which we'll talk about in a minute. We've got a really interesting view when it comes to how do you get more people in the workforce? What's the role of government defending the country? Uh, you know, how do you know you're done with cyber if you're a, a CISO, if you spent enough money? So we're trying to put out, you know, these short five to 10 minute videos where it's a bit of a talking head, but they're quick and they're easy to watch. And there's always a good takeaway from them. And they've been pretty popular and they're over on our Google Tech YouTube channel. Google Tech Adventures at YouTube. So thanks for asking about that. And as far as the foundation, mm-hmm. a lot of the work that we're doing commercially to protect banks and the the banks are doing and large organizations and enterprises, we're spinning our wheels if we don't get the public and other people involved in their own cybersecurity, you know, activity. You know, it is a game. It, it zero sum game. No, that's not what I'm saying. Cybersecurity is a team sport. But what we were missing is the public. And so with the foundation, we wanted to get more people into cybersecurity. So how do we do that? And that's really been the exploring path of the foundation because we look at investing in nonprofits the same way we invest in startups for for for-profits. And that grant funding, sometimes it's the initial grant that gets them going. But one of the things that kind of came out of that, I kept getting asked, Cindy, how do we get more women in cybersecurity? And I said, stop calling it cybersecurity because what it sounds to me is you put the entire world on your shoulder, you put your hoodie on and you march downstairs in your parents' basement and you work alone. Mm -hmm. And it was such a revelation that that's absolutely not what this industry is. I did come from the industry. I learned it by osmosis. But it is so great to be all in the same mission of defending all of these people and all of the activity online. But so I said, why don't we start calling it data care? Similar to the way the medical field pivoted to healthcare. Once that happened, people started saying, yeah, you know what? I have a personal responsibility for my health. I can eat better. I can sleep longer. I could do things that improve my health, that it's not just my doctor's visit or my dentist's visit that's going to take care of me. And that was a big push because we found preventative activity was much easier to deal with than reactive. And I think right now we're kind of at that inflection point now with with cybersecurity industry. We built the plane while we were flying it. We've gotten to a point where now it's a lot more integrated. The public is actually paying attention and they're getting personally impacted And so now if we invite them into the industry and tell them why we're doing all of this work, because it's their data and they have a personal responsibility to help protect that data. And we can talk more about the data versus the technology. And, you know, if I start talking about encryption or or other technology, generally the layperson eyes glaze over and they stop paying attention. (laughs) But if we're saying, 
but your data, you could demand more protection of your data. We can do a lot more regulation around data care than we can about the technology because the technology is moving so fast and the innovation is, is going so fast. We don't really have time to get everybody on board. They have to start taking some responsibility themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's a very key concept. And I know Jen Isterly and Newberger love the concept because they say this is not a just a, a technical field. There's analysts, there are program managers, there are operations managers. It's, it's everybody's responsibility. And I've seen that term being used more and more. So great coining the, the, the right term. So tell me more about the foundation. I know you're about to award and so how does it work? I think you've done six awards by now, or typically they get celebrated and announced around industry forums, and maybe some people on the podcast may not necessarily know <laughs> how, how to do that. So maybe then it's available. When we started getting into Google Tech Adventures, we knew we wanted to be philanthropic, and you know we didn't really want to just be hey, do a meeting with Ron and Cindy and make everybody pitch us because there's there's a lot of problems. We want to be very purposeful. We had the idea, I think it, I think it was used about doing a uh, competition where we would pick a topic because, of course, cybersecurity is so broad and we didn't have the term data care yet. But we, we would pick individual topics. Some of them would be social in nature. Some of them might be things like education, educating the public. Governance. And we would basically put up a million dollars of, uh, of our own money to do a competitive grant that million dollars would be distributed across the winners. And in order to help us pick these, uh, the winners, we enlisted about, we about 25 people 30. on on the grant committee, including Alberto. Thank you very much for that. And we have a real process. We do a little bit of uh, vetting, make sure everybody's a nonprofit. You know, you'd be surprised how many times we get people who, oh, it's coming next week, you know, that kind of thing. And it is what it is, but our foundation set up to work with US-based nonprofits. And the grad committee does pick the winners, and we try to do a little bit more than just you know give them the money. Uh, but what we found is that the winners have gone on to get more engagement from the government, maybe grants from DHS, maybe jobs at DHS. Kirsten Todd used to be on our grad committee, and then she was chief of staff for Jenny Easterly for a while. And uh, it's been great. What, what do you think about some of the winners? Yeah, the topics have been really enlightening for everybody i think and that was one of the things when you're thinking about well i'd like to be philanthropic well we didn't know what we didn't know we didn't know what was out there we didn't know who was doing the work and what ideas people had so it's been a lot of fun to learn about all over the country what different people are doing one of the winners has a card game for k through 12 so uh, k through two three through five and then older and it's like Magic the Gathering and, oh, here's my server. Well, I'm going to play my firewall card to protect the server. And so it's a really great way to introduce the ideas, the network, the technology in a very fun and understanding way. Again, inviting people into the industry in a, a way that they are more welcome than thou shalt, you should, regulation, cybersecurity warrior kind of mentality. So... We've had a lot of fun just with interacting and seeing the success of our foundation winners. We're recording this in uh, in August of 23. We're going to be announcing the winners of our most current grant in October of 23, which is Cybersecurity Awareness Month. Well, clearly, we're behind schedule because it'll be Data Care Awareness Month. But 
The focus is the national cybersecurity strategy. There's five pillars in that. We're focusing on pillars one and two, a nonprofits that help to protect the critical infrastructure and disrupt and foreign threat actors, ransomware groups, that sort of thing. So we've got a lot of great candidates. Alberto will be putting a voting package in front of you very shortly. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, no, what a great multiplier effect because you're not just, you can be philanthropic and give to an individual or a team, but you're saying, let's look at organizations that their core mission and objective in life is to create that and they need to have that multiplier effect. You're inspiring many of us to follow through and I can see these becoming a much bigger movement to make sure you increase the diversity. I know you did it with for African-Americans and neurodiverse and there's been topics that sometimes we don't even talk about or what we talked about, we don't do anything about it. And it's great to find organizations that their whole purpose and mission in life is to help the community. Anybody who's watching, if they want to go to Gula, G-U-L-A dot tech, T-E-C-H slash foundation, we list sort of the grant award ceremonies to every grant that we've done. Some of them were Zoom during COVID. Some of them were at the RSA conference. So we really appreciate our partnership with RSA, letting us able to do it there. But we list all the winners and uh, we have links to them and they've all gone on to continue to do great things. And they're looking for volunteers. <laughs> yes. Exactly. And then sometimes... Like at Force Point, we have our own objectives and, you know, we're very active in ESG and, and that social and governance component. We also look for groups to get engaged and involved and, and to have an, imp an impact. So I encourage everyone uh, listening to the podcast to, to get engaged in that way. Um, I guess reflecting back, you've been involved in high impact organizations that have key ingredients for success and you have worked together. If you reflect upon what is your secret and what can share with people on what makes high impact organizations succeed and what are the key elements that you think everybody should should really focus on? Well, from my standpoint, I was always building the foundation. And so respect is so important to me. So I always respected not only servicing the customer and enabling the customer to do that, I always enable the employees in order to do their jobs. So I just really want people to know what the expectation is and deliver on that expectation as best possible so that they can achieve their goals. Again, whether they're the customer or an employee, somebody that works with us, that made it a lot easier for the two of us to work together because again, having an engineering background and knowing I didn't want to code, I could spend my time on HR, legal, sales operations, you know, all the fundamental pieces of the business. And that's really important as well. Sometimes we see founders that are so hands on the keyboard and so entrenched in the product itself that they don't understand that the business is not the product, that the business is the people that you've luckily have been able to convince <laughs> to come work with you and to take care of them and then deliver that product and supporting the customer's need and that it's the customer's need so more than yours when it comes to features and solutions. Husband and wife team, we're both engineers. It's more about having the correct solution than trying to have the right solution. So being right is not necessarily always the goal. It's like, okay, let's figure out what really works here. Of course, Communication, I definitely agree with that. That's very, very important. But none of that works without cigars and a, a little bit of bourbon. So yeah, or wine. And we, I think we've had a good bit of that. And then on the communication thing, more than once, 
we have gotten into a meeting where someone was talking to Cindy or talking to me. And well, I told Cindy yesterday and I'd be like, you know, not Cindy, actually Cindy does, I'm not, I'm not Ron, you know? And so, yes, I think there's a lot of assumptions that when we go home, it, you know, when we were at least at Tenable Network Security Wizards, that somehow we would continue work. And uh, even at Google Tech Adventures, it, you know, once it's kind of family time or dinner time, it's probably not time to talk about the latest round or the latest, uh, you know, crisis or opportunity with one of the companies. Yeah. I would say that, you know, your bourbon and cigar gatherings are legendary. And I've been blessed to be partaking in many of those, and I highly recommend them. And to your point, you say always, take the time to smoke a good cigar and just the conversation ensues. Some people like to play golf. You could play golf with cigars, but mm, not sure how to do that, but uh, I can see the method to the madness. And so I guess the last question to bring these to a close is, so what is next? You know, I know you, you've you been writing this book and all these chapters. Is there a next chapter that you guys have in mind or? Well, it was funny because you introduced us and said, we've done it all. And I was going to say, well, no, actually we haven't done it all. And that's the fun of it. And then really, you know, again, doing this with my spouse is great because we get to enjoy the the idea I, together. Spouse? I thought you're my girlfriend. No. Girlfriend and spouse? No, okay. We are, we are voluntary. Voluntary related. You know, there's still a lot of work to do. 2023, we've got the National Cybersecurity Strategy. The, the, this administration has done very clear about, you know, getting the fact, but it's going to take a while. It's going to take a long while. And a lot of people outside of cyber realize that cyber is not their number one important thing, which is one of the reasons we're pushing data care. I mean, right now the economy's down a little bit. We're seeing entire security teams, you know, basically let go and, and whatnot. So we do need to have more innovation. We don't have enough people in this industry. We've got to have better tools. We are not going to stop what we're doing and we're encouraging more people to, to innovate and join. And if we can help them, we're happy to help. Well, thank you very much for all your contributions to the industry and, you know, and and, and always being trailblazers, a lot of people will follow. And, you know, obviously I can speak for everyone at, at ForgePoint. We really enjoy the the relationship with you. It's multidimensional because we share deal flow. We have a common perspective of what's needed. And, you know, to your point, we see we're just in the early innings and there's a lot of work to be done. And, and at, to a degree, we feel very privileged to in the position that we're in to work with amazing entrepreneurs. We have been entrepreneurs, but we know nothing goes on the straight line and, and just having the resilience and people on the sidelines that can encourage you to continue to move forward is something that sometimes is rare, and especially in the investment community. But uh, look, thank you for what you do, and hopefully we'll have you as guests as, uh, in the following episode of the, the podcast. Hey, thanks so much. Thanks for all the work you guys are doing for the community, in particular veterans. You guys do a lot of work there. And it, we're, we're very happy to, to share. Yeah, looking forward to the next cigar with you. Uh, me too. Well, thanks again and have a great rest of the week and, and weekend. Appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode. Subscribe to the Forgecast, which is brought to you by Forgepoint Capital. We're a leading cybersecurity and digital infrastructure venture capital firm that invests in exceptional teams protecting the digital future. To learn more about Forgepoint, visit forgepointcap.com or find us on LinkedIn and Twitter.